like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Now, in each episode of this podcast, I'll look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. Often I'll look at works over several episodes. And in this case, I am forced to do that because this episode's novel, the novel I'm going to start looking at, is a weird one with a complicated publishing history and... And it's a bit hard to fully understand and deal with. It really does feel like it's two novels written at two different points in Dick's life with different themes. And if you look at it one way, it's just a straightforward story of of a deceptive government, right? Or government deception. But when Dick kind of went back to it and studied it again, he found he wanted to write a story about shifting reality something he had already done in the three stigmata of palmer eldridge and would do more and more later in his career in the late 60s and 70s now this novel is is lies inc uh, lies inc is the name we we have it today it was originally published as a much shorter novel really an extended short story called the unteleported man so what i'm going to do here is talk about the unteleported man in this episode and then I'm going to pick it up and in a separate episode talk about the material that was added to make the novel Lies Inc. Right now, even when you read this now, there, there are moments when you're like, I'm in a different novel. I mean, literally, this plot doesn't make any sense. Like there's characters who are in places they shouldn't be based on the way we understand the story. And then when we kind of go back to the mainline story that we started reading, the unteleported man that character is in a different place again. It's very, very weird and, and awkward and things are not presented chronologically and it's not fully explained why. And it's, it's because it got extended and it got extended like in a thematically different way. And so Dick started doing different things. I don't know if that makes it a more interesting novel for some of you. I don't, for me, it's a bit frustrating in that I don't mind when Dick does the weird stuff, and there's a lot of weird stuff in the middle of the novel. It's really great. If you like that story, The Faith of Our Fathers, you'll love the central chapters of, of Lies, Inc., the stuff I'll deal with in the next episode. But it doesn't really... He had a good story here in The Unteleported Man, a really interesting one with some really great thematic imagery, and then he kind of goes away from that. And, and it, again, it's because he came back to it and, and finished it up. So that so first I want to talk about the publishing history of Lies, Inc. a little bit from um, Paul Williams, who was the executor of, of Dick's estate after he died. He wrote some on the publication history, what led to Lies, Inc., how it went from the Unteleported Man to the, the longer text, the different publication, the kind of the, just the overall history of this publication. Then I'm going to get into we're going to talk about the, the Unteleported Man as a standalone text and its themes and its material. And we roughly know where the material, well, obviously, because the unteleported man you can still get a hold of. So we, we pretty much know, you know, where, where the added material is. So that, that's what I'm going to do. So uh, let's just start with the publication history. I'm getting this from the, the, the Lies, Inc. 
vintage edition. The afterword to it has a, has a short little essay, three pages or so, by by Paul Williams, and this is where we get the the history of the publication from. Okay, so we can start. Um, I'm just kind of skimmed through this this essay by Paul Williams to, to highlight the main dates, so so we know when this stuff happened. Uh, and it does explain a lot of why the the novel does seem like it's it's incomplete. There's obviously missing material somewhere here that Dick never got to write, or some connective material and explanations that just aren't here. And you just got to deal with it if you want to enjoy this novel at all. So the agent, Dick's agent, received the manuscript for the Unteleported Man, which was Dick's title on August 26, 1964. So this is during that really prolific period we're in the middle of, and that's why I'm dealing with this now rather than later in the, in the 70s stuff, which is, which is um, when the Allies, Inc. Was, was published. So this got published in, in December of 1964 in Fantastic, and then it was published by Ace in 1966 in the double book format. This is how Dick published a lot of his earlier novels, too, um, as kind of one half of a double book uh, that, were, that were sold together, you know, like front to back. Um, and I don't know. So the back cover was the front cover of the other novel, right? That's how these double novels were done. Um, so just reading in director for Paul Williams, Ace reissued The Unteleported Man again as a half of a double book in 1974. The novel was published under the same title, but with the previously unpublished expansion material added by Berkeley Books in 1983. So we have three editions, three publications of The Unteleported Man, the third one of which in 1983 was still called The Unteleported Man, but it added this, this material, the kind of the second half of, of the book. Now, where did the second half of the material come from? Well, Dick, uh, apparently, in a letter written in 1977, said he, he had to cut it out. He actually had two parts to the story, and they'd only accept a 40,000-word novella, and so he only could publish really the first half. So that, that suggests that that extra material was, was already there when he wrote the original text, or, or not long after. So Williams also reports that in 1965, Dick looked at the expansion material, which was in the Fullerton Library at the time, and he found there were gaps that he tried to fill up. So, quote, he also realized that the expansion wasn't exactly a part two that could be placed immediately after the rest of the book with no explanation. In the course of dealing with these matters, he got the idea of reframing the book by writing a new opening pages and a perhaps various bits of new connective material, end quote. And this is a real problem. As we're going to see, this almost works better as an add-on. It, the character's in the right place for the events and doing the right things for the events that happen in the middle of the book to happen at the end. Um, so there's, there's kind of an incongruity that, that does make sense if it's at the back, but for whatever reason, Dick thought he had to put it in the middle. So he, he rewrote chapter one, or he wrote a new chapter one, rewrote the original chapter one, which is now chapter two. And then he made this decision to put the stuff in the, in the middle, three-fourths of the way through the original short novel. So this is really in the middle of chapter seven, we jump into what seems to be events taking place at the end of, of The Unteleported Man. Um, just, just to let you know what happens, it's, I'll get to these details later on, but our main character, Rockmeld, um, Ben Applebaum, wants to travel to this other planet, but he doesn't want to use the teleportation device everyone uses because it's, it's claims to be a one-way, and he doesn't think the messages they're getting back from this colony world are true. So he wants to take the ship, right? And he starts to take the ship, but this plan breaks down. He has to go back. 
And then because of basically his, the woman he's fallen in love with is in danger, he decides to be teleported, right? Now the events that are added refer in part to things that happen to various characters, my, uh, sideline characters, but a lot of it has to deal with what happens to Rockmel Ben Applebaum when he goes to the transporter and what he experiences and what that means. And it's very thematically different. The, the Unteleported Man stands up on its own. It makes complete sense as a novel and it ends in a satisfying way. But when you add this other material, it becomes really weird. And I understand why Dick didn't think he could put it totally at the end, but it had to have been not so lazily just put together as a chunk. I think it needed to have been broken up a bit more and, and filtered throughout the novel and, and a little bit more connective material adding to it. Um, so anyways, uh, now this was never done if Dick ever thought about doing this because Dick dies, of course, in 1982. And at that point, the publishers have you know, control over the fate of The Unteleported Man. So Berkeley Books published it, the, the longer edition of The Unteleported Man in, in 1983, which is a year and a half after Dick died. Uh, then Golans, which is the British publisher of Dick's books, also expanded it. And then Paul Williams uh, played a role as well in, in kind of getting this full version of The Unteleported Man out there. And it was actually in 84 that it was published under the title Lies, Inc. And that was by Golantz, this press. So it, and it had Dick's revisions that he made in the original added material, the revisions he made in 65, the revisions he makes later on in 1979, and then some additions that kept connecting things together by, by another writer named Sladek who, who helped fish all this together. Now, it's not entirely perfectly done, but... Um, so then William says that he found missing pages from the 1964 Unteleported Man expansion. They were published in the Philip K. Dick Society newsletter, and they're also included in the American edition of Lysing. So they're in here as well. So it's, it's kind of complicated, and I, I don't think I'm going to be able to say exactly where each part of the text comes from, but it's... It's a bit incongruous. It's got incontinuities that it seems your time frame is jumping around a little bit. And that's just unfortunate. But I think The Unteleported Man, that's what I'm going to focus on talking about today, stands on its own. So if you can kind of just enjoy the middle section for its kind of wackiness and its weirdness and its cool ideas, you can do that and then still kind of get the main theme of of the mainland story. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to really start with chapter two of Lies Inc., which is chapter one of The Unteleported Man, and and as best I can talk through what I, what's in the core text of, of that shorter work, The Unteleported Man, because, you know, the themes I focus on in this podcast, they, they can fit themselves better to that part of the, the story. So without any further ado and, and, and conversation, I'm just going to uh, start giving my thoughts. Okay, so our main character is a man named Rachmel Ben Applebaum, and he's obviously of Jewish descent. It's heavily implied throughout this book, and this is, especially the Unteleported Man, it, it gets a little bit weird with the Lysing stuff, but with the Unteleported Man is a story about the Holocaust, largely, and about mass murder, and Dick's certainly reflecting on this. There's a lot of imagery that's pulling right from, right from, uh, World War II, especially the gas chambers, the, the threat of, of mass murder, certainly in the backdrop of this, of this novel. And in a way, when you look at just Unteleported Man, it's really about 
the the Nazi versus kind of the Stalinistic uh, type of authoritarianism, right? And its impact on individuals and the use of human life in these two authoritarianisms. Um, you know, that Dick was writing this during a time when this term totalitarianism was being invented to kind of group together Nazism and Stalinism into one overarching kind of badness, that kind of an anti-Americanism, you know, that, that Europe had, like one of the sins of Europe was, is kind of how I understand this concept of totalitarianism, right? In fact, of course, Nazism and, and Stalinism were quite different. They had, they, they manifest in very different ways. And we see that in just the very, the very different symbolism um, being used. So the fact that our main character is Jewish matters. It's, it's on his mind as a, as a character, the Holocaust is, and it's on the mind of other characters as well. And he's seeking out the help of Mrs. Freya Holm. And Freya Holm works for, for Lies, Inc., which is a company that, it, it's a private corporation, but it's engaged in various activities uh, that... Like it's kind of a private police force. It has its own army. It has its own kind of command structure. It has military power. It has ships, soldiers, and things like that. The full name of Lies Inc., even though it's it kind of this insidious name, it's actually short for Listening Instructional Educational Services, and it's it's like a it's like a glorified and expansive private detective agency um, is what it is. So they're not really the liars. Here, despite you know the title makes you think that the, the lies are much grander and being engaged in by different people, and there's a competing corporation alongside them. That's THL. THL is short for Trails of Hoffman Limited, and they have they're the ones who control this technology which can transport people across time and space, but apparently only one way. At least that's the claim they make that they can transport people one way across. Uh, to to somewhere else, but not back, and they can't communicate back. And this is this is where the doubt begins to set in for some of our characters about what is actually going on in the other end of this teleportation device. Um, now, why is Rockmel Ben Applebaum caring at all about what what Trails of Hoffman Limited is doing? Well, the reason he cares is his his he basically inherited the shell of a failed corporation. Uh, Applebaum Enterprises, which engaged in kind of space exploration. They built ships and stuff for, for, com for commuting and for uh, relocation and things like that. And it was going fine, but then with this transportation technology, this teleportation, his company was undercut. And so no one wants to take an 18-year voyage to another planet when, when people can kind of just zap over there and warp over there. So he is, you know, he's basically the the last uh, his company is on its last legs right they don't have many assets the one real good asset they still have is a ship called the Omphalus, but it's kind of useless because it can only travel the old-fashioned way basically i think they give the distance that they're trying to travel as more like more light years than 18 but they still take 18 years so it has slightly faster than the light capacities but not nearly fast enough to to really reduce the the time it takes to take these these voyages. So we have these three corporations that seem to be in competition. Lies Inc. is is more like information gathering, private detective kind of stuff. But it's got it's it's got its own military power. It's not it's not just a guy in a in a room in Brooklyn uh, spying on people who are having affairs. It's not that kind of private detective agency. It's much more uh, 
massive. It also seems to do advertising things where they can shoot into people's dreams, different messages and thoughts and, and even control people to a certain degree through through this kind of technology. So it can do a lot of cool stuff. Then there's Trails of Hoffman, which is engaged really making its money in this over you know, this interstellar colonization. And then we have the remnants of Applebaum's company. Now he's going to Freya home of of Lies Inc. for for help. And he's afraid Rachmel is afraid that Trails of Hoffman Limited is after him and trying to get him. So he's also seeking protection. Now, the most important people in the Trails of Hoffman Limited are Dr. Sepp van Einem. He's the person who created the transportation technology. And then the boss of that company is, I got his name written down here, uh, Theoderic Ferry. He's the leader of Trails of Hoffman. He's the real powerful one. But Sepp van Einem is the creator of this teleport device, and he works for Trails of Hoffman. Hoffman as well. And so this device is just called the teleport device. It's essentially a, a teleporter. Um, so he is... And they talk about other things. Freya and Rockmill talk about Trails of Hoffman, what it does. We're Through them, we're introduced to some of the history uh, and it, the background here of what that company does. They also talk about Rockmill's father's suicide. Um, and now, why is this transportation teleport technology so important? Well, it's because we have a theme here that Dick is going to come back to in, his in the next novel we're going to look at, which is the crack in space. And that is the problem of overpopulation. I wouldn't say Dick was obsessed with the question of, of population. A lot of science fiction writers you know, were much more concerned and wrote books that are really about population. Dick plays with it. Uh, often his worlds are more often underpopulated than anything. You don't get the sense of overpopulation in, in a lot of them. Even like the imagery of Blade Runner shows this kind of overpopulated world. But in Duandro's Dream of Electric Sheep, the people on Earth are infertile. They're sterile. They can't have kids. And, and basically, they're the leftovers. It's the colonies where all the real growth is taking place. And, you know, the there's something a bit off when you watch Blade Runner in the sense, maybe because it's urban. I mean, there could still be concentrations of population. But the novel is much more oblique. Death, world of death, right? There's, there's not animal life anymore. Human life is on decline. It, it's, it's, it's a world of kipple. Um, anyway, so we got this overpopulation problem, and teleport solves the problem because it allows people then to move to this planet that they've discovered, which is capable of supporting life. And this planet is called um, Whale's Mouth. It's in the Fromhalt system, and it takes 18 years at hyperspace to to travel there. So the Umfelis, uh, Rockwell von Applebaum can go there, but it'll take 18 years to do that. Teleportation, it can be done in 15 minutes, essentially instantaneously. Once you prepare, you put it into the chamber and you're teleported. And the imagery of the te of this teleportation chamber is very, very relevant because of its, of its very clear parallels to the Holocaust. Um, and we'll talk about that in detail when we get to that part of, of the story. Um, so Rockmel explains to Freya that he wants to go to Whalesmouth to prove that the messages they're getting back from Whalesmouth are lies and that the optimistic imagery, the boosting that's going on, we got a lot of boosting of the frontier. Advertisements coming out, come out to the frontier, come out to our, our glorious uh, new land. And he's convinced 
it's not true. He convinced, he's convinced something's wrong there. He doesn't know what it is. Is it a totalitarianism? Is it a slave camp? Is, there, is it just one-way murdering? Is it just straight-up murdering people? Because the UN knows the Earth can't support as many people, so they're just encouraging people to go there, and those who go are just zapped out of existence. That could be, right? There's no message back, right? The only... They have ways of maybe communicating, but there haven't been any messages back. There's, for instance, the satellite, but it never delivers messages back to Earth. So it's a, it's a one-way trip. No one can come back, so no one can come back to report. And no one would want to take the 18-year trip back. So basically, Rockmill's plan is to get on a ship, spend the 18 years, go there, learn Attic Greek, and learn all these other languages, study to keep his mind sane, and then... Find out if anyone wants to go back, find out the truth, and then return with any people who, who perhaps want to come back. His doubt here is that just whale's mouth is too perfect. So he wants to find malcontents. He also wants to save his company. He thinks that he's still got this one asset for the company, the Omphilus. And he thinks the Omphilus can make a profit. He can charge what he wants to people who are perhaps desperate enough to get off whale's mouth and return to Earth. Now Freya working for Lies Inc. is intrigued by this plan and actually kind of excited about it. She even even likes the idea of perhaps Ben Ben Applebaum becoming almost like a time capsule, right? So he'll be gone for something like 36 years, right? Maybe more. And he'll come back and he'll be out of loop for that long. So it'll just be kind of an interesting experiment in, in a, you know, kind of a human time capsule. So that's, that's how, that's the plot. It's pretty introduced right away, straight up. We, we have all the pieces in, in place and, and much of the rest of the unteleported man qualifies as almost like a kind of a spy versus spy action adventure uh, maybe we don't have to talk about it that much to get the main idea of what's what's happening here so well anyways in chapter three chapter two of the original text um rockman ben applebaum you know he's no it's, it's freya sorry freya goes to her boss the head of lies inc Matson Glazer Holiday is his name, and they're lovers. You know, Dick can't resist having a, a boss and his female underling having sex. It happens in, a, in so many of his novels. But she's talking with him about Rockmill's plan, and, and Matson's kind of intrigued by this. He's on board this plan as well. In fact, he wants to even go farther, and he wants to do his own investigation. Into this. He doesn't want to wait 18 years. Or 36 years. He, he thinks he's going to die too soon. He, he won't be around at that point. And Frey at one point says, like, you, you know, you'll be around. You're not that old yet. But, you know, he's just afraid. He's, he, he's too impatient. He wants to figure this out himself. And he wants to really understand why would people be, would be lying about this? What is the truth here? Well, why isn't there, why isn't there no one coming back? Why aren't there messages coming back? Why don't people... Right? Why don't we know? Why do we know so little about whale's mouth? And it's interesting that in the extended material, one of the big kind of MacGuffins in that part of the story is a book that's the complete economic and social or political history of of whale's mouth, which is exactly what everyone on Earth is lacking. They have no idea what's really going on there. So he's like, when he hears this plan, he's like, "Yeah, we're going to do our own thing as well." Um, but we get more of the background here. Uh, Dick revives something he did in like the Simulacrum and a few other tales, which is, is you know, of course, uh, Man on the High Castle as well. I mean, that gets so much emphasis for this kind of the Germans winning. But Dick does this in other ways in like the Simulacrum and in this 
book where he has the Germans basically dominating the post-war world, the future, through means that are very similar to Nazism. It's, it's not that the Nazis straight up won the war. It's that their methods won and they, they reemerged as the political power. Right? And of course, if you look at 20th century history, you have the rise of the German Empire. It lost a war. It rises again. And it lost... And, you know, Dick's just imagining kind of another wave of that cycle. He sees something kind of enduring and strong in, in the German, you know, approach. It's always something he criticizes, though. He, he doesn't fail to ever fully criticize what the Germans are doing and, and kind of the f- moral and political foundations of these German-dominated societies. But, you know, he... You know, that's part of the subtext of, of what's going on in this. And, and Madsen, Glazer, Holiday, of course, collecting information on everyone. He, he has files on virtually everyone, it seems. He thinks about the Germans, what they contributed, and he thinks about the, the, U, the UN leader, Horst Berthold. And, of course, there seems to be some association with the UN government, which is dominated by Germans, and this teleport technology, which was invented by a German, so here's um, what Madsen thinks. There was something he did not like about those German technicians who manned the teleporters. So businesslike as their ancestors must have been, Madsen mused. Back in the 20th century when those ancestors, with the same effectless calm, fed bodies into ovens or living human beings into Urzak shower baths, which turned, on to, uh, turned out to be Zyklon B hydrogen cyanide gas chambers, and financed by reputable big Third Reich businesses by Herr Krupp von Schnoll, just as von Eymann has financed by Trail of Hoffman with its vast central offices in Grossner Berlinstadt, the new capital of Newhold, Germany, the city, in fact, from which our distinguished UN Secretary General emanates. Get me, Madsen said to Freya, instead of scotch and water, the file on Hortz Berthold. And so he's connecting whatever's going on here to kind of continuation of, of Nazi policies. And he sees this as almost like a core part of the German people's identity and, and way of life and and the way they do things. And even the symbolism, we already, so he's already planting the seed here that the symbolism of people going into this teleportation device is very similar to the one-way trip uh, to, into the gas chambers. Right? Now, just to be a little bit nerdy on the historical context here, Zyklon B was used at Auschwitz. It was not used in every single death camp. I don't even think it was used outside of Auschwitz at all. Uh, most of the death camps, the uh, the like at Treblinka, Belzec, Sobibor, those um, Operation Reinhardt death camps, the ones that were used to, to, to murder the Jews living in Poland, uh, particularly uh, the occupied, or the general government, the occupied Poland, yeah. Uh, no, not, that's not the occupied. The general government was the satellite part of, Poland was divided into different parts during the war by the Germans, but the general government was one part of it. And the Jews there were sent to those camps. That was called Operation Reinhardt. They, they used carbon like dioxide, carbon monoxide poisoning. Basically, they just attached internal combustion em- engines to these buildings and, and murdered people that way. So it wasn't always like Clan B. But anyways, the, the imagery here of the one-way trip into a death chamber is, is this, and the teleport seems to be structured the same way with these formal business-like bureaucrats running it. So as he looks through the file on, on Bertold, the UN secretary, he thinks about the history here, how, uh, you know, you got the Nazi background, of course, but then Germany was reunified. It helped the West defeat China, Red China, when that emerged. 
And so it became part of like the Cold War, extension of the Cold War. And that's what kind of allowed the Germans to, to recover and become dominant in the West. They even invented the technology that destroyed people's China. Its Waffen technic technicians had devised as instructed weapons, which had in 1987 dealt a terminal punch to people's China. Um, now, but the next problem that the Germans were called on to face was the problem of overpopulation, which starts to kick in in the 1980s. And again, we get Holocaust imagery right away when Dick thinks about this issue of population. Quote, and what a quid pro quo that had been proved to be, because correctly and legally, newest Eigen Deutschland had obtained control of the sole planet-wide and hence sole-wide governing structure, the UN. They held it now as the former member of Reinhold Jugendhorst Berthold was its secretary general and had faced squarely as he had promised when campaigning for election, it had become by 1985 an elective office, that he would deal with the colonization problem. He would find a final solution to the tormented condition that one, Terra, was an overpopulated throughout as thorough as Japan had been in the 1960s, and two, both the alternative planets of the solar system and the moons had been domes at all had failed wretchedly, end quote. So just put this in the other context of the other frontier novels from this period he wrote. I mean, Three Stigmata, Palmer Eldridge shows you, like, the moon's not going to cover it. Mars isn't going to cover it. These places will just be shitholes if we colonize them. So Whale's Mouth is the opposite. Whale's Mouth is presented as an ideal, a utopia. No one ever wants to come back, right? It's totally perfect. Right, and there's not, there's no case in human history of these migrations where you don't have, you know, backpedaling of some people, right? Even for all the people who came to the United States, many went back to England or Ireland or to their home, you know, within that same generation. So it wasn't all just one way. This is something really bizarre, and Madsen knows it, and he's kind of been inspired by uh, Rockmel Ben Applebaum to to try to find out what's what's going on here. So one suggestion is let's just warp some people over. Let's just use the teleport device to go over there. Send some people over as spies. He even suggests they send Freya. The problem, of course, is a one-way trip and they don't know what they're jumping into. Are they are they just going to cross over and there's going to be you know, guns pointed at their head and they're going to be killed instantly? Is it a way of murdering people? Is there going to be a powerful state there? Is it something that I could easily overthrow? And Madsen also has this idea, like, maybe if we go there with, like, a bunch of troops, we can just take over their shop, right? By this point in the story, about 40 million people had gone through the teleport device to Whalesmouth. Now, we can't say they got there because no one knows. But they're blinkered on that aspect of it. But 40 million have gone. And they're predicting that by the time Rockmel Ben Applebaum can get there in 18 years, it might be like a billion people. So it's like an exponential growth of people using this. So it, now is the time to figure out what this is. And Madsen realizes there's not time to, to jerk around here and, and wait for Rockville Ben Applepons. As good as his plan is, it's going to take too long. So he wants to, to move on that. Quote, short of 18 years of space flight, a time period which would all infinite millions, even a billion if the ex extrapolations were correct to pass by way of teleport constructs on that to him terrifying one way trip to the colony world you are wise madsen said to himself grimly you never take one-way trips anywhere even to boise idaho even across the street be certain when you start that you can scramble back end quote now that warning is not held by madsen or freya or or lies inc in general because they really don't have another option than to try to get there 
So uh, next chapter, uh, we return to Rockmel Ben Applebaum, and he is woken up at his home by a black man. Dick still uses the term Negro here. This was written in the '60s before that term was was considered not as politically correct. Um, but uh, a black man wakes him up, and this this man is Al Dosker. Dosker. He is basically from from Lies Inc. Now, one thing that uh, Rockmel Ben Applebaum is having is these dreams about being a rat. I'll, I'll talk about the, about those more in the next episode when we get to some of the weirder aspects of, of the final text, the Lies Inc. text. But he, he has these conversations with this rat in these, in these dreams called Fred. These seem to be things that were implanted into his mind by, by Lies Inc., perhaps by accident. Um, but I'll come back to that, that interesting stuff there. But he wakes up and, and Dosker is eating a turkey leg and they're, they're traveling to the Omphilus. Dosker is the Lies Inc. representative who is there to help Rockmill get the Omphilus kind of out of the solar system without anyone knowing. So he's, Rockmill can fly the ship to Whalesmill, that's fine, but he doesn't have the skill to, to kind of hide it, to, you know, to use whatever techniques are available to make it look like the Omphilus just disappeared, right? So the plan is to Dosker and Rockmill and Applebaum will travel for a while. Dosker will take the leadership to kind of hide the, the Omphilus. Then he'll return and, and Rockmill will go off on his own. That's the basic, basic plan they have. And they're about to do this and they get picked up. They get what's called food, P-U, picked up. And, and Dosker and Rockmail are captured by essentially Trails of Hoffman Limited or their agents. So they've been on to them the whole time. And this is going to be a, an, on, an ongoing problem that, that they're going to face. Is that Lies Inc. doesn't seem to be that good at keeping secrets, I guess. They, they collect information very well, but they're... They seem everyone's always up on one up on them. They they don't come off as very impressive. They they're a bit buffoonish, and um, we only see them really ever fail in the story, unfortunately. So if they're supposed to be an insidious kind of mastermind of, of data collection, it it doesn't come off that way, unfortunately. But and here's just one example: is just almost as soon as they go out there, they get they get captured, and they're 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 met by by none other than Theoderic Ferry, who is the head of of Hoffman Trails Limited. And he actually tries to kill them with a handshake. Dosker warns him, don't shake hands with him. It's going to be poisoned. And, and that turns out to be the case. But when this attempt to just straight up murder them fails, he just offers him a deal. And he offers the deal directly to Rock Melba and Applebaum that, you know, we won't crush you if, if you don't go. And he basically says, like, you're going to lose everything if you go. It's, it's worthless. And, and, you know, he tries to drop contracts to, to get him to, to agree not to go. And Dosker says, like, look, you know, look, they're willing to give you some benefit not to go on this voyage. You know, doesn't that intrigue you that they're really trying to hide something? And Rockmel still wants to protect his company and his assets. So he's, he's worried about losing the Omphilus and all that. So he's kind of tempted by the, the offer. Now, one other thing that's going on here is once they hide the ship, 
kind of the next question is how is he going to spend those 18 years on the ship and he claims he can just study and learn Greek, ancient Greek and other languages and Dosker has real doubts he, he says you know I've been on even shorter voyages and you know I it, that doesn't work you go crazy very soon you, you kind of you spend that much time your mind can't handle it so he recommends that that Rockmel get these sleep induced special kind of these drugs that put you in a coma for for years and years and slow down your age. So this aging will slow down. You won't lose as many years of your life and you won't go insane, right? Dosker is convinced that if he stays awake the whole 18 years by himself on the ship, he'll, he'll go crazy. Um, what else here? Oh, by the way, the, the simulacrum or the theo, theodoric ferric that they meet is actually a simulacrum. You know, Dick can't help but, but throw in throw in the, a simulacrum into the story. So the next scene is involving Rockmel Ben Applebaum. This is chapter five of the Lies Inc. text. Is Rockmel trying to get this sleep-inducing drug from Freya, and Freya Lies Inc. has it, and they're willing to hand it over to him, but they're they're trying to do it covertly, uh, so Trails of Hoffman doesn't know. So they meet at this French restaurant. We get a little bit of commentary here about overpopulation as as a result of this. Um, it's really class status is, is part of it. Is, um, quote, a line of well-cloaked people waited. It was always this way on crowded tarot. All restaurants, even the bad ones, were overfilled each night from 5 o'clock. And this was hardly a mediocre restaurant, let alone a, a right bad one. What else? Jeunet, the maitre d' called to a waitress wearing a lace stockings and partially jacket vest combination now popular. It's one left breast, the right exposed. His nipple was elegantly capped by a Swiss ornament of many mim parts. That ornament, shaped like a large gold pencil eraser, played semi-classical music and lit up a series of attracting, shifting light patterns which focused on the floor ahead of her, lighting her way so that it could be passed among the closely placed tiny tables of the restaurant. Yeah, you know you're in a dick novel when you have either dilated nipples or fashion statements by ornamented music, classical music playing nipple covers. Yep. Okay, anyways, they're at this front restaurant, and he's taken to another table, but he sees Freya Holmes. Um, now, Doskar, by this point, has already taken it hidden in the Umphalus. He's going to be back later on to actually commence the trip. So right now, they're just hiding the ship, so when it leaves, no one will be able to identify it. She's, they talk about this a little bit. She, yeah, he goes and first sits next to her and, and they talk a little bit about this. And she says, I have these materials you're looking for in this pouch. And they have this really complicated way of handing it over. Like she's got, it's a device that's going to attach itself to the menu. And then from the menu, it's going to slide into your hand and you take it. It's not going to come directly from the purse. And it's all to be covert. So Trails of Hoffman Limited doesn't, doesn't get it. And we, we're reminded that this is kind of a high tech spy agency essentially um now it confronted fails or the plan fails almost instantly and th uh trails of hoffman limited knows about this and they they intervene and the uh, effort to get the deep sleep components fails and this this leaves rockmel in a position where he's going to have to take this this voyage without the deep sleep components so that's, that means he's, he's going to have to risk going insane if he wants to make this, this voyage. 
It's in this section of the story as well that we first are introduced to, to Omar Jones, who is the man claiming to be the president of New Colonies World at Walesmouth. And he's on TV, as he often is, boosting the future, boosting the frontier, trying to encourage people to come across and travel and you know, brave the, the voyage across to, to Walesmouth. So Matson, meanwhile, is is thinking about ways to perhaps use a satellite that that humans put around whale's mouth that we can still contact and communicate with. Use that satellite to transmit data back and forth. And they're thinking about like once we get to whale's mouth, we can't transport things back, information back using teleport, but we can use old-fashioned means to do that. So how do we bring teleportation device or communication devices with us? And then, you know, use them to transmit messages back? Or do we kind of use the satellite or other means? So he's really interested in pursuing his own investigation into, into, the, into Whale's Mouth. So meanwhile, we have uh, a lot here about, well, I guess, the, the, the frontier. And the, this is all in Chapter 5 of Lives, Inc. It's, it's how people see Whale's Mouth. We, we're starting from the very beginning of the novel with doubt. We're, we're told to doubt what's going on in Whale's Mouth. But that's not what the normal people see. They, they see the advertisements promoting the frontier. It's better than Earth, right? We have space. We have room enough. Even if there's a billion people here, there's more than enough land, more than enough room for everyone. You're not going to be cramped. It's this great future. Um, and all frontiers sort of do this. I mean, even in the 16th century, you can find people pimping the new world as this, you know, all these great commodities, all these interesting people, land for free. And like that. So when they're trying to get settlers to go to these, these frontier areas, that, that, that kind of boosterism of frontiers had been there throughout modern history. And it's not surprising that it's continued here. So we're given this, this kind of optimism about the, about the frontier. And our character that's sort of the window into the popular opinions about the frontier and this, this emigration experience is a man named Jack Meckleton. And he, he comes up at this point in the story and he shows up later on at the end. And he's, he's just the common Joe Blow with a wife who want, and, and kids and, and, and thinks about emigrating and thinks about the frontier as, I mean, as a bright future for him. And I'll just read this. This is on page 50 of the Vintage version. On the TV screen in 3D color with olfactory tracks, the round jovial features of President Omar Jones of New Colonized Land said, you folks there on good old overcrowded terra. And behind him faded in a scene of miles of open veld-like parks. You amaze us. We hear you're going to be sending a ship here by hypersea and all arrive. Let's see. He pretended to be comp- contemplating. Before the set, not quite paid for, Jack McElturn, a hard-working, easy-going, good-natured guy, said to his wife, Christ's sakes, look at that open land. It reminded him of one of his sweet, fragile childhood of years ago, now gone, the Oregon Trail, part of Wyoming, west of Cheyenne, and the desire, the yearning grew in him. We got to emigrate, he said to Ruth, and we owe it to our kids. They can't grow up as, shh, Ruth said. On the screen, President Omar Jones of New Colonizeland said, in just about 18 years, folks, that ship will arrive this way and park down. So here's what we've done. We set aside November 24th, 2032 as Flying Dutchman Day, the day the ship reaches us. He chuckled. I'll be on 94 and sorry to say probably not here to participate in Flying Dutchman Day, but maybe possibly, including some of you young folks. You hear that? 
McElteen said to his wife, incredulous, some nuts going the old way, 18 years in tween space. What all you have to do is, be quiet, Ruth said, furiously trying to listen. Be here to greet this Mr. Applebaum, President Von Omar Jones intoned in clowning solemnity. Banners, Fox Pop streamers, we should have a population between, well, say one billion by then, but still plenty of land. We can take up to two billion, you know, and still leave plenty of room. So come and join us, cross out, cross over and be here to celebrate Flying Dutchman Day, folks. End quote. And then he thinks more about the frontier and ponders that. And he's this character who's dreaming of, of the frontier as a way to escape his miserable miserable life. And Dick can never fully escape this, him being a California writer, I guess, or being a frontier writer, the, the, the pull of the West, the pull of the frontier. And even when he's kind of soured on that whole concept of the frontier, as he has by the mid-1960s, you see that in The Three Stigmata, he still at least has it there as a, as a, as a hope, as a dream. Right? There's always characters in these novels that still have that hope that the frontier is something good. And there's always a glimmer of, of frontier optimism, even in the bleakest portrayals we'll, we'll see from this in, the, in these novels. Of course, Flying Dutchman Day uh, reminds us of... How to say this? Okay, now, I don't remember the exact details of this connection, but I've read stuff about it. Because when I was studying Wagner, I, I came across this... This, this idea, this association of the Flying Dutchman, which is the story of this ghost ship that hits land every 18 years or something. And if he can find love, he could, this ghost can be saved, right? And that's, that's the theme of Wagner's opera, right? But there's, the, there's also this legend that this seems to be associated with, and it, and it was apparently for Wagner as well, with the Wandering Jew, right? So the Wandering Jew is a mythical, immortal man whose legend began to spread in Europe in the 13th century. The original legend concerns a Jew who taunted Jesus on the way to crucifixion and then was cursed to walk the earth until the second coming. The exact nature of the wanderer's indiscretion varies in different versions of the tale, as do aspects of his character. Sometimes he's seen to be a shoemaker or other tradesman. Um, sometimes he was seen as a doorman at Pontius Pilate's estate. And then there's a whole, that's sort of from Wikipedia, and there's a whole bunch more to this. Um, but it seems to be connected in some way to uh, the, the Flying Dutchman. Uh, in fact, this is in the, the, the article actually on the Flying Dutchman itself, not the, not the opera, which is, would be properly called De Fliegen and Hollander in the German. Uh, but here, Montserrat's corrected connection probably stems from his book Master Mariner, which was partially inspired by this tale. He lived and worked in South Africa after the war and the story of the wandering Jew. So there's some connection here. I don't quite know what it is, but the fact that Rockmill Ben Applebaum is a Jew and they use this language of the, of the Flying Dutchman, uh, it's, it's hard to ignore. But still, we got the frontier dream here and it excites me that, that Dick doesn't want to drop this entirely. Uh, so the end of chapter five is really dominated by this, this man, Jack McElton, and he shows up at the end uh, as, as the man who almost emigrates disastrously. So in chapter six, uh, Rockmel is on a flapple. Well, the flapple is just like you know, a shuttle, a car or something like that. Um, and he's going to the, the Omphilus. Dosker thinks he'll be insane very quickly if he goes out there without the deep sleep meds. Um, but he says he's going to waste time by, by learning different languages or things like that. And 
sorry. Just trying to find my place in my notes. Alright, that's that's basically all that's happening. They're going to the Onfalus. So his Brockmill's plan is, is speeding along. Now Matson, meanwhile, is is thinking he's still obsessed with trying to figure out the truth. And he, he figures he can't live another thirty-eight years to find out from from Rockmill the truth, and then Rockmill might not even make it, right? His plan is pretty risky himself. You know, will he get there? Will he go insane? Will people when he gets there just kill him, you know? So he decides his his only choice is to go for himself and to transport himself using Telpor. And that's the only way he's going to find out. So he just gets obsessed with this. And even if he knows it will be his last mission, he wants to know. And, but he does no plan to, to come pack him. He, he doesn't want to come alone. He, he wants to come with the full force of Lies Inc. He, he wants to send 2,000 of Lies Inc.'s best soldiers with him. And he thinks that there's a good chance that they'll be able to simply initiate a coup d'etat, take over Whale's Mouth, and and achieve some kind of control. Uh, there is a danger, though, of teleportation that you know no one really knows what's what's going there. And Freya has a lot of doubts. You know that maybe Hortz Berthold is part of the Whale's Mouth government. Maybe the Whale's Mouth government is stronger. Maybe, maybe they'll just they can just kill you when they send you over. They don't really don't know enough about Telpor. And this is something that really bothers Matson. I, I kind of like this character, Matson, because he is someone who prides himself on being knowledgeable. He has files on everyone. He knows history. He's studied this stuff for for years. His whole business is based on collecting information. Yet there's this one thing he doesn't know and it becomes obsessive to him. It's like the one piece of information he doesn't have. And he, he must figure that out. And Matson is also a believer, it seems, that on that he's speaking for the common people. He's speaking for an open frontier versus a corporate-dominated frontier, and that's something that bothers him as well. It's even though Lies Inc. is a corporation and a fairly powerful one, he, he's they're becoming increasingly the small players compared to uh, Trails of Hoffman and the UN, which seems to be dominating the whole migration thing. So he almost is coming off as almost a libertarian uh, actor who's going to save the frontier for for the common man. Quote, he thought, according to the to published info, that there's a home army, so-called at Will's Mouth, of 300 volunteer citizens for use of some sort of National Guard in case of riot. 300? And none of them were professionals with the experience. It was a pastoral land, the ads explained. A, G of E, lacking a snake, since there would be a superabundance of everything for everyone. What was an army needed for? Why have the not, why have not existed the envy? What have not existed to envy what have? And what reason to try by force to seize the buildings? I'll tell you. So, sorry, it's like the way it's worded here is a bit odd. But he's thinking about the have-nots and the haves. And he's thinking like in this open frontier where there's plenty of land, there's no need for a strong state presence, right? But that doesn't distract from the fact, as he's going to explain in a minute, that it's still corporate ruled. It's still not going to be a free state. And he needs, he's the one who could perhaps save whale's mouth and make it a libertarian paradise that it could be. So here's what he continues on. I'll tell you, Madsen Glazer Holiday thought, the have-nots are here on this side. Myself and those who work for me were gradually over the years being ground down and overpowered by the true titans, by the UN and THL. And the haves are across 24 light years in the Fromolot system and in the ninth planet. Mr. Ben Applebaum, he thought to himself as he lay, supine, drew from reflex, fire home against him. You'll have quite a surprise when you get to Will's mouth. 
It was a pity that he himself, and he initiated with true certainty, would not be alive on that day. As to why, however, his near-psionic intuition told him nothing. Beside him, Freya lay, moaned in her half-sleep, settled close to him, relaxed. He, however, lay awake, staring into nothingness, deep in a new hard thought, the like of which he had never experienced before. End quote. And that's... So, that's his... Um, that's his plan. He's, he's going to go... He's just going to send over in force and, and establish something for the miserable have-nots back on Earth and stick it to the, the man, right? He's a bit, I think, not entirely consistent in his philosophy here, but, you know, Dick's after something in terms of kind of the, keeping the frontier for, for the people, not, not as an extension of the state. I think that's one way to save, save the frontier. It was kind of the problem in the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge where the frontier became just a, kind of a UN extension, right? That's one reason it was so shitty. Okay, chapter seven. Chapter seven opens with this effort by Lies Inc. to contact the satellite that's around Whale's Mouth and, and communicate with it and to have it send information back. And just as this happens, we just see the missile destroy the satellite and we see a false message sent back to Solal. So this effort to use the satellite to get information back fails. And then we jump to Freya, who's on a luxury taxi and she runs into Al Dosker. She, she sees Aldosker as a threat, um, and she prepares poison to kill herself out of fear of what Aldosker might do. Um, and she tells him about the coup plans, and Dosker wants to, you know, believe Lies Inc. here and believe in this plan, uh, but Freya has her doubts that the, plan, the coup plan will, will be successful. And he, in order to say, basically save Lysing, though, so Dosker is convinced, though, as soon as they get there, they're going to be murdered. He thinks there's nothing good going on in Whale's Mouth and that, that you could send a, a million people, not, not much less 2,000, and they'll all be killed. There's, there's really, they'd be totally outmatched because they control the teleport technology. So he says, I'm going to basically go to the UN and, and tell them the plan. But we get all this weird Holocaust uh, imagery again, especially with this concept of the one-way trip. So he says, because Dosker said, I'm going to Hort's Belt in two hours before six, I believe that's usually considered four o'clock. His voice was icy harsh. I'm an employee of Lies Incorporated, but I did not join the organization to participate in a power play like this. On Terra, Madsen GA stands where he ought to be. Third in the pecking order. On Whale's Mouth, and you want me, Freya said, to do exactly what between now and four o'clock? Seven hours. Inform Matson that we and he and the 2,000 LI field reps arrive at the retail offices of THL. They'll not be teleported, but will be arrested and undoubtedly painlessly murdered in German manner. This, she said, is what you want? Matson dead and then those Bertrold and Ferry and von Eymann to run the corporate Terran Walesmouth political economic entity with no one to... I don't want him to try. Listen, Freya said violently. The coup that Manson expects to carry out at Will's mouth is based on his assumption that a home army of 300 ignorant volunteers exists over there. I don't think you need to worry. The problem is that Matt actually believes the lies he sees on TV. He's actually incredibly primitive and naive. Do you think it's a promised land over there with a tiny volunteer army waiting for someone to come along with real force aided by modern web technology, such as Matt possesses to harvest for the asking? If they were so, do you honestly believe Bertrand and Ferry would not have done it already? 
And so they, they have this argument. Now, they both doubt this will be successful. But it's really the debate, do you betray Matt or, or do you essentially support him in his plan? Frey is eventually able to talk Dosker, though, into not going to the president. And she actually suggests we should, you know, go to the root cause, right, and attack the president itself. That's the heart of this, this corruption, or attack the Secretary General of the UN. That's the root problem here, not, not Matt's plan. And betraying Matt's plan is, you know, she's, she talks him into not betraying his plan to, to the UN. But the theme here we get here, and they end up talking about this, is that there really can't be a power vacuum in, in Wales Mellon. That a frontier like this, in a context where you have corporate power and state power competing, the, the, a power vacuum will be filled up by some authority figure, right? Whether it's the UN or Lies Inc. or Wales Mouth. And so the idea that there could only be 300 people there, that's a libertarian paradise, is a bit where Matt, that's Matt's delusion, according to both Freya and and Dosker. Okay, then we, we jump to chapter 8. And 8, we see, this is events that must be taking place really at the end of the novel. So we get kind of a jump, and there, there's, we're missing some connective explanation here, because Rockmel Ben Applebaum is now at the Telpor saying, my wife has crossed over, and the person he's thinking about is Freya, and he's going to cross over next and follow her. And And I don't know why it's here. Maybe someone can explain this to me because, you know, I guess there could have been some material here where it's explaining why he couldn't go on the Umphalus, so he decides to finally do this. But we, we get the explanation of why he decides to teleport himself at the end of the novel, at the end of the unteleported man. He says, I'm going to go across. So he does that, but then, you know, he's going to cross over to Freya. Now, what's key here in this section, and about... A few pages into this section, three pages, four pages in, is the, un, is the end of the section of the Unteleported Man. And we jump into this added material. And I'll talk about that in the next episode. So I'm just going to skip by it, all this. But apparently the beginning of this chapter, up into the words, acrid smoke billowed around him, was all in the original Unteleported Man. But I'm not sure where. I don't have a copy of it. So this is, this is where we get this deep Holocaust imagery. Right, quote, Rockmel finished undressing and terrified followed them down a tiled hall to what suddenly loomed as a mammoth chamber, almost barren. He saw in it no elaborate Dr. Frankenstein hodgepodge of resorts and bubbling cauldrons, only the twin perpendicular poles like the concrete walls of a good tennis court, covered with circular cup-like terminals. Between the poles he would stand, a mute ox, and a surge of the field would pass from pole to pole engulfing him. And he would either die if they knew who he was, or if not, he would at least be gone from terror for the balance of his life, or at least for 36 years. Well, the 36 years is the Omphilus would go on its own, autopilot, I guess, and then he would transport. And he'd have to wait for the Omphilus to get there and then take the Omphilus back. So that's, that's why it would take 38 years. Um, we even have, like, more things. Like, your clothing lies in a metal basket. In the right mark, one two one six two eight. If you're faint, there's a cut you may lie down. Uh, here are your two items of luggage, numbers three nine four eight five. On those, it's all very bureaucratic. It's all the imagery of uh, of the Holocaust. But he crosses over, and then he he gets this acrid smell in his mouth. It says what Dick says: acrid smoke bellowed around him, stinging his nostrils. 
what happens is he's struck by an LSD dart sometime after getting to Whale's Mouth, and then he enters into these weird delusions. Those are things we're going to talk about next time. So the novel then, uh, The Unteleported Man, continues in chapter 16, which is the second to last chapter of, of, the, of the book. So I think we can be quick at this point and wrap up the, the story of The Unteleported Man. Freya and Matson cross over themselves. This, of course, happened sometime before Rockmel crossed over, as described in chapter, the, the events described in chapter 8. They cross over, and they are instantly defeated and found out. Matson is killed almost right away. They try to send messages back, and they are able to get messages back to Dosker. Um, some coded messages they planned out before, but Matson's killed. Freya is in extreme danger. But what they realize about Whale's Mouth is that it's not the Nazi model, it's actually the Soviet model of the gulag, of the work camp, right? That basically the people who cross over are enslaved and turned into, into slaves, slaves of the state. And it's a police state dominated by a, an oppressed population. So instead of being the optimistic frontier, it's, it's just another 20th century totalitarianism. Just not the one that, that Rockmel Ben Applebaum was obsessed with. with um, thought he was going to find, right? It's, it's not the, the Holocaust imagery we've been prepped for and preparing for. It's, it's, it's the Soviet model. And that's what they're told. And Dosir gets the message. And he's able to uh, release this information. He calls Rockmel Ben Applebaum, who's still in the Omphalist, starting his own voyage out. He says, it's don't go there. It's, it's, we already know it's there. We got the message from the Lysing people. Dosker's ship is destroyed. He, by Trails of Hoffman, apparently or the UN. I think it's the UN. And then he escapes in a suit. Instead of being killed and left into space to die, he's taken in by the UN and questioned. The Omphalos is also intercepted and Rockmill is captured by the, by the UN. And so Dosker and, and Rockmill are taken back to Earth. Rockmill, it's revealed that the UN are not bad guys. They're not in cahoots with Whale's Mouth. They're also in the dark about what's going on in Whale's Mouth. And so they're sort of on the side of, of the Lies, Inc. scheme to try to find out what's going on. So, so the UN offers to help. And the plan then is to save Freya. And the only person who can really do this is, is Rachmel. So they establish a plan by which Rachmel will cross over using the teleport device with the hopes of, of saving Freya and maybe salvaging the situation in Whale's Mouth. And, and that kind of returns us to the events of, of Chapter 8, apparently, where we saw Rachmel use the teleport device. Um, and, that, and then we don't really get the, the conclusion. Now, if... To some degree, depending on how you read it, those middle chapters that seem to, but with the added material, maybe give us clues about what happened. It's, it's all really bizarre stuff. I, the next episode will be shorter because I, I think it's hard to talk about those added chapters because the continuity is really not fully fleshed out. Um, but, but I'll try. I, I want to focus on Rockmill's journey and what he sees and the experiences he has there. The final scene of the novel, though, is we're back to Ruth and Jack McElton and these people who have decided to emigrate. And they're about to. They actually pack up. They go to the Telpor. And 
they're told, well, why are you here? Don't you know? Haven't you been watching the news? And they show the news, and it's revealed that Whale's Mouth is, is a work camp, that there's colonial tyranny there, and people stop emigrating, right? They're told, don't go there. And they were just moments away from, you know, if they had just gone a few hours earlier or just a day earlier, they would have become slaves of this colonial tyranny, but they are saved. And so the novel ends optimistically with the news getting out about the reality on Whale's Mouth. And so there's whatever Ben Applebaum's ultimate faith is, fate is, it, in a sense, the, the novel ends positively. The truth is revealed and the, you know, the future is uncertain, of course, and this is something Dick does all the time, but you know, he, he often likes to end novels with some kind of shattering of the structure of the system and then a, kind of a hope to let the reader imagine what might happen next. So that's, that's what it is. So what we're going to talk about in the next episode is, is I guess, the Lies, Inc. part of the story in which we get to see what material Dick had written as the second part of it and, and then where it's added. Especially I want to focus on kind of the psychedelic drug-induced experiences that Rockmill has and, and what this novel, how this novel connects to Dick's other themes of, of, of shifting reality. So depending on how you read this novel, this is a kind of a classic Philip Dick tale about government corruption and tyranny and, and lies and the frontier and how all these things come together. Or it's a novel about drug-induced alternate realities, uh, a la The Faith of Our Fathers or The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge. It's that part that we'll look at in the next episode when I talk about, I guess, the Lies, Inc. part of this story. So um, if you've read Lies, Inc. or if you read The Unteleported Man, uh, let me know what you think. If you, I would be really interested if anyone's read just the straight-up Unteleported Man. I, there may have been moments I, I, I skipped over or incorporated into the Lies, Inc. text that I, you know, I didn't place them in the right order or something. Um, there are some extra experiences by Freya and Matson that are described too that I, I didn't say much about. If there's anything in that stuff that you think is important that I should have talked about, please let me know. Leave your comments below or, or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. In, um, in the next episode, we'll talk about Ben Applebaum's wild ride after arriving in Whalesmouth. So see you next time. Till you find the bluebird, you will find peace and contentment forever if you.